Good morning, Redeemer. Our scripture this morning is 2 Chronicles chapter 15, page 369 in the Black Pew Bibles. Second Chronicles 15, page 369. Please feel free to stand. of God came upon Azariah the son of Odet, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah the son of Odith, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that, had taken, that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon, who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, 700 men and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with all their desire. 
and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Even Maacah, his mother, King Asa removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days, and he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. Well, amen. Good morning. Uh, would you, I want you to just, uh, before you, you probably already have, but take your Bible back out, uh, open them up to Second Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, we're going to march through uh, a broader story of the text that we heard read this morning. Uh, so I want you to just be there uh, when we jump in. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at this text together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We ask that you would anoint our hearts to hear your word this morning, to be soft to your word. God, would you allow us today, uh, while it's called today, as we hear your voice, would you, would you empower us to not harden our heart uh, to your word, but to remain soft and tender to your voice? Would you strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit and uh, move among us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, quick review as we dive into the text this morning. Um, you know, we've been preaching through the books of Chronicles uh, with an attempt for us as a people to try to understand and strengthen and establish the purposes that God has for us as a church in this season as we've felt this call to partner with the Lord in building his house, right? In our own church family, even, even renewing some commitments together as a spiritual family and um, launching out into what the Lord has for us in a season of rebuilding, but also within the world around us, uh, seeking to reestablish uh, rightly ordered worship and a pursuit of the face of God at the heart of everything that we're, we're, we're doing together. Uh, and what we've seen throughout these books is uh, there's been both a pattern of how to pursue that together as a people, but what we're about to enter into is a series of stories that are intended to put that on display that, that are designed to fill the people of God with strength and faith. Uh, and so, so as we come into the next several sermons, we're going to watch um, this pattern of disobedience and renewal happen among the people of Israel again and again. And the point of these stories is to take uh, a group of people uh, that are looking at the ruins around them, right? We've, we've talked about chronicles were written to the exiles that were coming back from Babylon with the charge to rebuild God's house and the city of God. And they're looking at these ruins 
Romans. And as they set out to work, things are way harder than they want them to be. They're slower than they want them to be. They're more op- oppressed and opposed than they want them to be. Uh, they, they, you know, things get really difficult and they need to be filled with faith and confidence and courage all along the way. And so these stories have a particular design about them to strengthen the people of God as we set out in the work that's before us, as we all face the temptations that are around us to draw back as it's harder and slower and more challenging and more hidden than we, we would often want it to be, we, we need to be infused with confidence before the Lord. And that's what these stories are designed for. Uh, Let me just remind you of a simple uh, overview of where we've been in Chronicles, and then we're gonna jump into this story, right? So First Chronicles, you could say, is just all about David getting ready to p- make the temple, right? That's, that's the whole of First Chronicles is David's got this dream to build a house where God can dwell with his people. He doesn't get to do it, so he spends all of his energy stockpiling resources and administrative processes to get it ready for his son to do. As we flip over into 2 Chronicles, we we saw this crescendo as Solomon sets out to build the house and then consecrate the house. And in the doing of that, God shows up to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, and he gives Solomon a pattern that's going to work itself out for the rest of the book. Essentially, the pattern is this. When my people forsake me, when they turn away, when they, when they forsake worship of me and pursuing my face, I am going to bring hardship and difficulty in their midst. Out of my mercy, God says, I'm going to trouble them through discipline so that they'll be awakened to the reality that they are no longer pursuing me, but they've filled their lives with all these other things. I'm going to shake them awake, even if that's what needs to be done. And if they awaken to that reality and they turn back to me and they call upon me and they humble themselves and they seek my face, I will hear them every time and I will turn to them and heal them. That's what God promises in 2 Chronicles 7. Now, for the rest of the book, what we're going to see is that pattern work itself out over many generations Uh, as we watch David's lineage struggle to maintain a pursuit of the Lord. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at the story of Asa, this king who we see this first renewal happen in his time. And we're going to uh, tell the story of Asa. And then I want to highlight what I believe from this text we could see are some marks of this kind of pursuit, right? If we, if we have a pattern that, we, that God has given us to pursue renewal, what does that pursuit actually look like. I think this text gives us several marks of that kind of pursuit. But before we get to that, I want to just walk us through it. So I, uh, take your Bible, have them open to 2 Chronicles 12. We're going to fly through the story of Asa. And to do that, we have to go back to his grandfather, where we, picked, where we left off last week, uh, with the king named Rehoboam. So after Solomon's death, 
The kingdom of Israel we saw was divided into two during the reign of his son, Rehoboam. Ricky preached on this last week. Uh, Solomon's son uh, doubles down on the hard labor that has been uh, done as the, the temple and the houses and the palaces were being built. He doesn't listen to the wise counsel of his father's counselors. He listens to the foolish counsel of his buddies from college. And uh, what ends up happening is this rebellion rises up where the 10 northern tribes separate themselves from the two southern tribes of Judah. So for the rest of the book, we are going to see Israel is in a state of fractured uh, existence uh, in, the, in their kingdoms, right? There's two separate kingdoms. Israel in the north, which might be confusing because you're thinking all of it's Israel, but when they talk about Israel from this point on, it's talking about the northern tribes and Judah is the southern tribes, okay? So we have this division that happened. After Rehoboam established his kingdom, we're gonna see this in chapter 12 right here. He was strengthened, but he abandoned the Lord and continued to not seek his face. This is 2 Chronicles 12.1. Look at this here. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all of Israel with him. So we see, you know, David is this uh, man after God's own heart with this desire to build the temple. He gets Solomon ready. Solomon walks out a spirit of obedience to build the temple and put worship of the Lord right at the heart of God's people. And in his old age, we see that he begins to stray as he multiplies wives and begins to build temples to foreign gods, to placate uh, 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 his wives, right? We see that Israel starts to go astray. But in his son, as, the, as Rehoboam gets established, he abandons the law of the Lord and Israel goes with him, right? So what does God do? What did God promise that he was going to do when they were disobedient, right? He was going to chasten them. So look at verse five. This is how he does it. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah and uh, what we see happen is the king of Egypt rises up and comes against Judah. And God sends a prophet to tell Rehoboam why, right? In verse five, he says, thus says the Lord, you abandoned me, so I abandon you to the hand of Shishak. Then the princes of Israel respond to this, right? So first the Lord goes, I've handed you over to this trouble so that in hopes that you would come to your senses and return to me. You've abandoned my law. I want to, you to come back to me, right? So we see in response to the word from the prophet, the king and his princes humble themselves by declaring God's righteousness in his dealings to them. Look at this, verse six. The princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves by saying, the Lord is right, that's what they, they're saying. God is right to do this. We abandon him. He said, if, if we turn from him, he's gonna chasten us. He's right in doing this, right? So God receives their humility and relents from completely destroying them by the hand of the Egyptian. Look at verse seven. So the Lord sees that they humble themselves. 
And then he sends the prophet back and he says, they've humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance and my wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him that they may know my service in the service of the kingdoms of the country. So why this partial thing? It's interesting to note that the people of Israel humble themselves, but there were four things they were meant to do, right? Humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, and turn, which means get rid of all of the foreign gods and the high places and the altars that you've built up to worship other things. Turn away from those and come back to me. They do one of those four things. And God in his mercy goes, I will receive your humility as such because you've aligned with what is true. You've said, I'm right to do this. Good job. But they did not seek his face. So he leaves this Egyptian king to trouble them, to keep them because they do not turn away from their idolatry. I want you to see this even in the text. Look at 2 Chronicles 12, 14. This is the statement about Rehoboam's kingship. He did evil. Why? Because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Right? So being humble and agreeing with something related to God does not necessarily mean that you are seeking him. Right? So there's a difference here we see between a posture of humility and a posture of seeking. Okay, so that's Rehoboam. Right? Then, after Rehoboam's death, his son Abijah begins to reign over the kingdom of Judah. This is 2 Chronicles 13. During his time, right, because they're still pursuing other gods, they're still abandoning the law of God, God uh, raises up the northern kingdom, Israel, to come against them, right? The people of Israel come to battle with, Ju- with Judah with an army that's double their size. You can see that in uh, 13, verse 3. Abijah, who's the king of Judah, goes out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. But Jeroboam, the king of the northern uh, kingdom, drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 men. So he's outmatched two to one. They come against them with this uh, uh, force that's twice their size. Now, Abijah understands God's promises to the house of David and the importance of rightly ordered worship. And he declares to Jeroboam their allegiance to the Lord, their God. Look at verse four in chapter 13. So Abijah stands up and he yells to Jeroboam, who's coming against him. They're outmatched two to one. And he says, hear me, Jeroboam, and all of Israel. You should know better. Ought you not know that the Lord of God gave the kingship to Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord and worthless scoundrels were gathered to him. That's a nice taunt. And they defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when he was young and irresolute and he could not stand against them. Now, 
You think to withstand the kingdom of God in the hand of the sons of David because you have so many people? You think that being outmatched two to one means you're gonna win against God's promise, against God's choice? What Abijah understands is he goes, hey, you're fighting a losing battle because we have God's king and God's worship. What do you have? You've got rebellion and what you're gonna see is fake worship. Right? You think you can stand against this kingdom because you have a great multitude and you're bringing these golden calves that Jeroboam literally just made up off the top of his head? You think you're going to stand against God's choice. Have you not driven out priests and you make whoever you want to be priests? Whoever comes, you'll make him a priest. Look at verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. Now, side note, it's not totally true. It's partially true. They do have the right king and they have the right worship, but they also have the wrong worship, okay? So he's not seeing that yet, but he's going, we haven't forsaken God. We still have the right king and the right worship. He doesn't, he's like, well, turn your face away from all the other wrong worship that we've got going on. Let's not talk about that. We have the right priests that minister to God. Verse 11, we keep the charge of the Lord. Now behold, God is with us. He's at our head. The priests with their battle trumpets sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God your fathers. You will not succeed. Right, so Abijah stands up and he makes this glorious speech. You can't win. You cannot stand against God's choice. It's hopeless for you. What does God do? God answers. He does what he promised. And he gives them victory over this army that's twice their size. Look at verse 17. Abijah and the people struck them with great force. So there fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men that day. And then look at verse 18. Israel was subdued at that time and the men of Judah prevailed. Why? Because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Here's the problem though. They still don't get rid of the foreign worship. Okay, so Abijah relies on God in this moment of crisis, but does not purge the land from foreign gods and worship of other gods. So after Abijah's death, his son Asa becomes the king over Judah. This is 2 Chronicles 14. So during his reign, the land has some rest for just a little bit. And he begins to do what is right and good in the eyes of the Lord. Look at uh, 14.2. Well, look at the end of verse one. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now, What is good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God? I want you to see this. He took away the foreign altars, the high places, broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram. That's all foreign worship, okay? Idolatrous foreign worship. And so not only does he get rid of the negative, he fills it with something. He commands Judah, seek God and 
obey his commandments. So seek his face and obey his word. So Asa does something right, right? He said, he looks at the landscape and he goes, it's not enough for us to keep this temple worship going while we've got all these other foreign idolatrous pursuits happening in the land. Let's get rid of those and set our hearts wholly to pursue God. Because Asa understands something that is true about the human condition. You actually cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. To have foreign gods is to serve them, right? Our hearts cannot be divided in their pursuits. We can only serve one master. And so Asa purges the land of these foreign gods and he commands the people to pursue the Lord and obey his voice. So then after this 10-year period, an Ethiopian named uh, Zerah, he rises up an army of a million people and 300 chariots that are riding at the front of it. Okay, so Zerah is a force to be reckoned with, right? Last time we were 400,000 or 800,000. Now we've got a million and uh, they're coming up against the people of God. So we see this crisis point happen yet again. And Asa calls on the Lord for salvation and Judah experiences a remarkable salvation at the hand of God. So look at uh, 14 verses nine uh, and following. So Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And Asa went out to meet him and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Meresheh. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, He's not just telling the other army what's true. He's actually praying here, okay? So this is, this is important to note. He's not just stating it like Abijah did to Jeroboam, which God had some mercy on. Asa is calling upon the Lord. He's praying. He's asking the Lord to move. God, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, we rely on you, and in your name we have come against the multitude. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. Asa and the people pursue them and they plunder them. Right? So we have these remarkable stories again and again of watching how this is unfolding. Right? So this season of deliverance then ushers in a season of great spiritual renewal among Judah. That's what we heard read this morning, right? So in response to Asa's prayer, God, help us, keep us. Don't let this person prevail against us. Don't let them come upon us. Would you deliver your people from the hand of the wicked? He does it, and then it opens a door for a whole season of renewal among God's people for two and a half decades. Right? So we saw that as we read, God anointed a prophet to go and speak, and he says, Asa, while you are with the Lord, the Lord is with you. If you seek him, he will be found. 
If you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then he reminds them of all these things. And then he tells them, hey, take courage. Don't be weak in the work that's in front of you. Keep going and you will be rewarded. So Asa takes courage. He continues the work of removing the high places and the altars and tearing down these foreign idols. And the Lord God was with him. Then I love this. Look at verse 12. Then all the people entered into a covenant together to seek the Lord with all of their heart and with all of their soul. This opens up a door for a season of renewal among God's people to seek his face wholly. And they swear an oath with a loud voice. This is verse 14. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath. They had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And what does it say? And he was found by them. This is this glorious reality when God shows up and does exactly what he promises. Now, if you're familiar with the story, it takes a sad turn. Okay, so Asa has this season of renewal for 25 years. And then again, another chastening reality is raised up. Basha, the king of Israel, again, comes against them and builds up a town on the border between Israel and Judah and essentially makes a fortress so nobody can go back and forth. And Asa has done so well up to this point. And 25 years in, they're at this marked point where the the forces to the north are rising up. He's uh, hindering traffic back and forth between the two, and he breaks. Look at me, look, look with me at um, verse two in chapter 16. So Asa takes silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sends them to the king of Syria, who lives in Damascus. And he says, hey, let's make a covenant together. Why don't we covenant together and you protect me? You protect me from the king of Israel. And so he turns from the Lord in his old age and makes a covenant with a foreign king. And God sends a prophet in verse 7. He sends a seer to him and he says this, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Then God says, hey, don't you remember what happened with the Ethiopians? Don't you remember when I showed up against such a great force when you called upon my name? You relied on me and me alone. And then one of the most remarkable verses in all of the scripture in verse nine, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. I long to give strong support to the heart that is turned to me. But you've done foolish because you have turned from me. And Asa becomes angry, throws the prophet in prison, and starts to oppress the people. Okay, so this is our first run through. The patterns that we saw given by God to Solomon about how he was going to relate to his people. 
And what I wanna do for the rest of our time, if you wanna go to page three in your notes, is I wanna look at four marks of a renewing pursuit that we see in this text. It's a fascinating story. I want us to highlight kind of the essence of what does pursuing the Lord, what, what are the marks of that in our hearts? Uh, we see the pattern, right? We've seen the activities. Humble ourselves, pray, seek the face of God, turn from our wicked ways. But I want to highlight in this, what are the, the heart realities at work in this kind of pursuit? What, what are the marks of this? And I have four that I want to highlight for us, right? The pattern of renewal in Chronicles begins with a posture of pursuit, a turning back to the Lord in times when it seems hopeless, right? God's given us a pattern. He's, he's shown us how in seasons of hopelessness and darkness and destruction or despair to pursue a posture of renewal. And I think there are four marks of this in this text. Hey, before we jump into them, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want you to just take a second. As we're walking through this, right now, I want you to just ask the Lord to highlight for you as we walk through this, maybe one of these places in your own life right now. Just ask him, just say, Lord, would you impress upon me a place where I need your sustaining grace to strengthen one of these marks in my life right now. Just, just ask him really, really quickly. Lord, would you, would you move and speak to us this morning through your word? So the first mark, and I'm gonna shape the, them as needs that we have. The first is the need for faith. So throughout the narrative, what we see again and again is the reality of faith at the heart of true pursuit. We have to recognize and remember at every moment that a true turning to the Lord requires genuine faith. In essence, faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he will do. That's the essence of faith. Right, so at the very heart of turning to him, right, he didn't give us this big like uh, list of things and commandments that we had to walk out before he would set his face toward us. He literally just says, have a posture of humble faith that turns to me and pursues me and I'll show up and do all the rest. Right at the very heart of this kind of pursuit is a heart of faith. The author of Hebrews, I want us to see this, describes the essence of faith, right? We see this throughout, throughout the scripture. Faith is the assurance of the things we hope for, and it's the conviction of things that we don't yet see. Right, so the author of Hebrews describes faith as when we know that we know the things that we hope for are, are true, right? It's not just wishful thinking, right? Hope, you might believe, is just like, man, I sure hope it's gonna, you know, be beautiful outside tomorrow, right? 
like, like this wishful thinking that's not based in any kind of substance or reality. The Bible says that faith is that moment when we have certainty that the things that are hoped for are true. That's faith. And it's the conviction that things that we don't see clearly with our eyes because we live in a fallen world, they are sure, right? So there's this confidence, this strength that comes from having faith. And look at verse six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, this is again the essence of faith, must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him, or he does what he says he's going to do. This is the essence of faith. Look at number three. I love in the New Testament, Abraham is always set out as the father of faith because he believed God at his word enough to have hope in God's promises in spite of what would be called like wishful thinking hope, right? What you might like, gee whiz, I hope that this would happen. In spite of that, he had certainty. Look at Romans 4 here. This is why God's promise de depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherent of the law, but also the one that shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It was spoken to Abraham that I've made you the father of nations in the presence of the God whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Look at verse 18 here. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Meaning, everything about his natural circumstances could, was, was tempting him to believe something else. So in spite of all of the evidence leading to, you can't have a baby, Right? That's what it's talking about in the context. God comes to him and says, you and Sarah are going to have a baby. And Abraham goes, my body's as good as dead. Sarah's body's as good as dead. One plus one does not equal two in this moment. He goes, but God, you can do whatever you said. You can do anything that you said. Nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is too complicated for you. Nothing is too hard for you. You spoke light when nothing existed and it happened. Anything that you say you can do, you can do. So I'll take you at your word. Regardless of what my senses tell me to believe about this situation, no matter how impossible it seems, no matter how much I shouldn't have hope in this, I will hope because what you say is true. So he, he doesn't weaken in faith, right? He considered his own body. Look at verse 19 here. I love that Paul says, which was as good as dead. I mean, he was old. It might, he might as well have been dead since he was about 100. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Again, two really impossible things standing in front of them. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So what we see in these that I want you to catch, every one of these places where the people turn to the Lord and call upon him 
They are abandoning their own strategies to provide salvation, right? Every time God brings this crisis point, when they acknowledge that God alone is right and that he alone can save, they experience God's saving power. So look at number four, in turning to the Lord, right? If we're at a, at a moment in our own lives where we're going, okay, we want to be the kind of people that pursue the Lord in a manner that if he's so pleased, he would bring about a season of renewal and refreshing among our work that he would invigorate our labors with his life and his kingdom presence among us, right? So as we look at our lives and we look at turning to him, the starting place of this kind of pursuit is a heart filled with faith. And that means we abandon every single one of our self-saving strategies and cast ourselves solely on the mercy of the Lord that's made available to us in the work of Jesus, right? To have faith in Christ is to receive in simple belief the truth that God alone can declare you right before him. Only God can have mercy on you. Only God can make the way for you to stand in relationship with him, right? If we're far off and we need to run back to him and seek his face, we actually get hit with a crisis point. We should, right? God's invited you into a place where you can experience his renewing life and presence in your world, all you have to do is humble yourself and seek him. And you should feel in that moment, I am a sinner. I have no right to seek his face. I have no right to come into his presence. How can a holy God receive me? That's the crisis moment that we all should face. How in the world can this perfect, just, beautiful, majestic, holy God receive the prayers of a wretch like me? That should be the crisis moment that we all face, right? And the reality of a faith-filled pursuit is that we look at the place where God declares, this is how you are made right with me. I sent my son into this world to live the life you could not live, die the death that you deserve, be raised again in life with victory over sin, death, the grave over hell. And if you look upon him, the son of man who was lifted up high for all to see, if you merely look upon him and cast yourself upon him, gutting yourself of every other saving strategy that you could come up with, I'll receive you of no work of your own, no merit of your own, nothing that you bring to the table. I have a feast set for you and all you can bring me is your absolute poverty, that you have nothing. And if you do that, if you take me at my word, God would say, if you take me at my word, my word is all that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come and seek my face. That's where it starts, right? And some, some of you in this room, 
need to receive that for the first time. You've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never looked at the crisis moment between the God that made you and has a purpose for you and a desire to dwell with you and live with you and, and, and draw near to you and let you experience his life. And you've never felt your inability to do that and cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus alone. And this morning, there is an invitation to do that. And for some of us, some of us need to rest assured in that truth again. Hey, it's really easy to get caught up in running the motions of the Christian life and getting propped up on my checklists of am I doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this? And am I reading my Bible this many hours a day or this many minutes a day? Or am I making it through my list? Am I walking through a prayer list? Am I giving my money away? Am I doing these things? Am I showing up for church? Am I showing up, up for people? Am I loving people? Am I doing these things? And you start to stack those up as the means by which you stand before the Lord. And the Lord says, I will have none of it. I will have none of it. Some of you, some of you this morning need to come back to the table of mercy in Jesus and cast yourself upon him yet again and say, I, I, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I have nothing to bring. All of the things that I keep trying to chalk up for my account are like dirty rags in your presence. I'm going to take you at your word and believe afresh that I am accepted in your presence, not on the basis of my good outweighing my bad, but on the basis of the merits of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. Go to page four. So we need faith. We need faith. I'm just going to move through these really quickly. The second mark is we need courage. Faith works something in us. And that working is confidence. We see that here uh, as the prophet came to Asa and he said, hey, uh, God's heard you. He's delivered you. Now take courage and get to work. Don't let your hands be weak. As you work, as you set out to follow him with your whole heart, he will reward you. He will come close to you. The reality of our faith is the means through which we receive God's gracious life. Now in faith, his life works in us in order that we would stand firm through uncertainty, doubt, fear, testing, right? Every one of these tests that comes up is this crisis moment of should I have faith or should I draw back? And faith fills us with confidence and courage before the Lord to stand firm. Okay, letter D. We need wholeheartedness, right? The mark of this kind of pursuit is it's full of faith. There's courage in it and confidence in it. It is wholehearted. So to truly turn to the Lord, we must forsake any other idolatrous pursuit. Live with a wholehearted pursuit toward the Lord and his glory. Jesus declared that there was an importance of a singular eye, meaning you can't set your gaze on two things. 
You can't focus on two things at once. You only have the capacity to be focused on one thing. And we're invited by the Lord to focus our affections and our attentions and our pursuits wholly on him. And he promises a life oriented toward his kingdom and righteousness would be met with grace. That's Matthew 6. You can read that on your own. So to live in such a pursuit means that there are not areas of sin in our lives that we are complacent with. Hey, let me, let me just mark out attention and something that stirred in my spirit as I heard Miss Barbara read this text this morning. As our acceptance before the Lord goes, we need nothing. We need nothing. All we need is to cast ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord. And there is a tension related to walking out holiness. Holiness does not earn us favor with God. However, when the mercy of Christ meets us, Christ tells us, go and sin no more. Right? There is a mark of pursuing holiness that needs to mark our lives. Now, here's, here's the thing. I don't care if you stumbled greatly last night. You can receive afresh the mercy of God. You can receive his delight in you, the grace of the cross of Jesus afresh, full confidence that you are accepted in the beloved with nothing to prove to him there. And some of us need to start to walk out from this place, delighting in the confidence of God and burn some of the images that we are giving ourselves at the altar of. I mean, when she talked about grinding up that image and burning it and throwing it aside, it's like, there are places in some of our lives where we need to take an ax to the pole that we're worshiping at. And we need to ask the Lord to sustain us in his grace, not to earn his favor, not to earn something before him because he'll, he'll love us more, but because as those accepted in him, we want to be fully pleasing to him. And he says, I don't want to share you with another and you, I know your heart, people of God, is what he would say to us. You can't worship at the altar of two gods. We're not made that way. We're made for one consuming vision. Lastly, we need endurance. Sadly, the story of Asa is a cautionary tale. Right? It shows the temptation to draw back from seeking the Lord as the seasons of our life unfold. Three, I just want to highlight three common enemies of a sustained pursuit. I, I think three things could stand in our way. And maybe, maybe the Lord has something for, for us here, uh, for you in one of these. There's three things that tempt us to draw back over the seasons. Number one is a spirit of complacency, right? When we begin to imagine that what we're doing outside, uh, you know, with our activities or our actions is sufficient or it replaces an internal reality of life in God. 
And you can go read the two letters to the churches in Revelation that deal with that. You also see that in Jesus' parable with the thorns that grow up and choke out the life of the seed as it's coming to fruition. These are the entanglements of the world, right? We get a little complacent with with pleasure or comfort, and we, we just kind of lose a sobriety about engaging in the world, and we were tempted to draw back in that place. A second common one is a spirit of offense or bitterness that grows in our hearts, right? Either at the Lord or at one another, right? We, we grow offended when the way that we hoped things would be is different from reality, Right? And as hope gets deferred, what does the Proverbs say? Our heart gets really sick in that moment. And there's a temptation to begin to become offended at the Lord and his ways of leading that makes us draw back from pursuing him with this kind of pursuit through the days of our lives. Lastly, what I think we see here is a spirit of pride. Right? We 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 actually bolster ourselves on yesterday's obedience. And we begin to cultivate a self-righteousness in us that we lose the humble pursuit of the Lord because we start to put, you know, uh, like gold stars on ourselves for yesterday's obedience, yesterday's follow-through, yesterday's pursuit and it can slowly creep its way into our hearts and build up as pride that keeps us from a posture of faith-filled repentance that lays ourselves out at the table of God going, I need your mercy afresh today. We have to ask the Lord for the grace to respond to his word every day while it's called today. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. Amen.